Amen. You can be seated. Good morning. If you're new here, uh, I'm Roger, senior pastor at Life Church. You can just call me Roger. I've been saying that for two years since I've been here, and most of you have caught on to that. Some of you still call me Pastor Roger. I think it's a cultural thing, but I'm just trying to do what I can to level the playing field. We do believe in the priesthood of all believers. We all have access to the throne room of God, right? We're all made righteous through the atoning work of Jesus Christ, right? Amen. All right. So just call me Roger. All right. Good morning to our viewers online as well. We're continuing our message series on margin. Uh, and this week we're talking about one of my favorite topics, simplifying. Simplifying. So there's never been an age in which we could get so much done so quickly. Um, there's never before been an age in which, as well, we've been so overwhelmed and overloaded. Um, emails, texts, voicemails, direct messages, um, so many ways to communicate, so many potential distractions, right? so many demands, so much content to watch. Right? I could spend the rest of my life just working my way through my... Uh, Netflix list, right? So many things seeking our attention uh, that we can seem, we can feel strained, we can feel hurried, we can feel breathless. The sheer pace of our lives can cause us to feel fractured and fragmented and overwhelmed. Um, the problem can be even worse for those of us who have a hard time saying no. Um, how can I say no to this? Like, think of the opportunity. Um, think of the good I could do. Maybe this will help my career. Uh, maybe I'll disappoint people if I say no. So like I said last week, we have obligations at work. We have obligations to our immediate family. Sometimes we have obligations to our extended family. Uh, we have social obligations. Sometimes we have community obligations. We have church obligations. What do we say yes to? What do we say no to? Christian simplicity, and that's what we're talking about today, can free us from all this craziness. Um, it can bring us back to sanity. And it can bring peace to our frantic spirit. Um, we don't have to feel frustrated and exhausted. It is possible to discover the center of unhurried peace. One of the first books I had to read uh, when I was training for ministry was a, a little book called A Testament of Devotion, uh, written by the Quaker Thomas Kelly. A Testament of Devotion, little, little book, um, but very, very powerful. Like, it's one of those books you just have to read in small chunks, and you have to read slowly because you've got to really chew on it. So in that book, Kelly wrote this, and it'll be up on the screen. Do you want to live in such an amazing divine presence that life is transformed and transfigured and transmuted into peace and power and glory and miracle? If you do, then you can but if you say you haven't the time to go down into the recreating silences, I can only say to you, 
then you don't really want to. You don't yet love God above all else in the world with all your heart and soul and mind and strength. For except for spells of sickness in the family and when the children are small, when terrific pressure comes upon us, we find time for what we really want to do. So he goes on to say this. God never guides us into an intolerable scramble of panting feverishness. Life from the center is a life of unhurried peace and power. It is simple. It is serene. It is amazing. It is triumphant. It is radiant. It takes no time, but it occupies all our time. And it makes our life programs new and overcoming. We need not get frantic. He is at the helm. And when our little day is done, we lie down quietly in peace, for all is well. So we're talking about simplicity today, Christian simplicity. Um, Christian simplicity actually involves several paradoxes. Um, Paradoxes, of course, are things that uh, seem to contradict one another but are both true. And they are usually things that need to be held in tension. So the first paradox of simplicity is that it is both grace and discipline. It's a grace because we're only able to achieve true simplicity through the power of God. And it's a discipline because we are called to actually do something ourselves, or in some cases, stop doing something. The second paradox of simplicity is that it is both easy and it is difficult. Um, It's easy in the same way that any Christian grace is easy once it's worked its way into our ingrained habits. I mentioned uh, this last week, this idea that discipline brings freedom. So whether you're an athlete or a soldier or a musician or an artist, um, you know that discipline brings freedom. Start with like little baby steps over time. You start building on those, start building new habits, developing new skills. And then eventually we find we're able to do things that we never thought were possible. It's the same with simplifying. So we take little, little baby steps that eventually lead to building new habits. And one day we realize that that God has brought us much farther than we ever thought that we could go. The third paradox of simplicity uh, is something, something that we need to hold in tension, and it is the balance between inner and outer simplicity. True simplicity is an inward reality that manifests itself in an outward lifestyle. Right? If we just focus on the externals, Uh, we can head down the road of legalism. Um, Like, let's say we start making choices to downsize uh, or to live below our means. And then we start judging other people for not doing the same things. We become a modern-day Pharisee. The outer expression of simplicity has to flow 
uh, from the inner heart. And each person needs to follow the Lord's leading in this area, right? The Lord may ask one person to live in a tiny house, to drive a beater car. He may ask someone else to focus on simplicity of speech, like choosing and using your words with care, using fewer words, making sure to bless and encourage more than we criticize. A fourth paradox or tension of simplicity is this. Um, When it comes to the stuff that we own, um, we can go too far in one direction leading towards asceticism, um, or we can go too far in the other direction moving towards being a materialist. Having stuff isn't necessarily bad, right? God's given us stuff to enjoy. Um, And believe me, if you do not have the necessities in life, you can be miserable. As someone who grew up very poor, I know what that's like. I know what it's like when they shut off the power. I know what it's like when you have pain and you can't go see the doctor or you can't go see the dentist. There's nothing cool or hip or virtuous about poverty. In fact, it's miserable. But the opposite is true as well. You can be miserable when you base your whole life on the acquisition of wealth and material things. So each person's journey of simplicity will be different. And really the important factor is to follow the Lord's leading in this area. When it comes to Christian simplicity, I think it's important too to to look at how Christians uh, have lived throughout history, right? So I wanna start with the first century Christians. One of the characteristics of the first century Christians is that they lived in such a way that it allowed them to demonstrate tremendous caring and sharing with anyone who was in need. Um, In AD 125, Aristides, who was a Christian philosopher, he wrote this about the believers of his day. He said, they walk in all humility and kindness and falsehood is not found among them and they love one another. They despise not the widow and grieve not the orphan. He that hath distributeth liberally to him that hath not. If they see a stranger, They bring him under their roof and rejoice over him as it were their own brother. For they call themselves brethren, not after the flesh, but after the spirit and in God. But when one of their poor passes away from the world and any of them see him, then he provides for his burial according to his ability. And if they hear that any of their number is imprisoned or oppressed for the name of their Messiah, All of them provide for his needs. And if it is possible he may be delivered, they deliver him. And if there is a man among them that is poor and needy, and they have not among them an abundance of necessaries, they fast two or three days that they may supply the needy with their necessary food. Fascinating. So a good question to ask ourselves is this. What are some creative ways 
to live simply so that we can care and share with other people in need. I'll say it again. What are some creative ways to live simply so that we can care and share with other people who are in need? I saw a news special once that said that the people who give the most in this country are the working poor. I've seen that a lot over my life. Um, it's those who have the least who tend to be the most generous. Because I grew up poor and we didn't have a, a lot of money to give, um, my stepfather, one of, the, one of the ways that he gave uh, is he would invite homeless people to come live with us. Um, they would live with us for sometimes days or weeks or months at a time. I mean, at any given time, three, four homeless people were living with us. I guess they weren't homeless because they were living with us. But, um, so at an early age, I saw, I saw this modeled in our own home. And so over the years, it's just been a natural thing uh, for Jackie and I to invite people to live with us who needed a place to stay. Um, over the years, we've had various friends live with us for months at a time. Uh, different family members who've lived with us, my sister, our nephew, my mom, my mother-in-law. Um, you just, you learn to share the bathroom. You learn to share the kitchen. Uh, in one case, for several months, Jackie and I gave up our bedroom, uh, slept on the, in the living room on the couch in an air mattress. So, uh, that's just one, one personal example of like trying to find creative ways to live simply so that we can help others. And I'm not saying like everybody should do what we did, but I would challenge you to ask yourself the question, how is the Lord asking you to live more simply so you can help others? Like that is what followers of Jesus do. Another group I want us to look at are the desert fathers and mothers of the third and fourth centuries, um, which is really the time of the birth of monasticism. Uh, one thing we can learn from them is this idea of renunciation. Um, the world at this point in history had become so dominated by materialism that a number of the people uh, responded to that materialism by withdrawing into the desert. They renounced like almost everything in order to experience the simplicity of having a singular focus on God. They wanted to strip away every hindrance, like get rid of all their possessions, get away from society so that they could experience freedom. Um, freedom from the control that material objects had on them um, and perhaps that even people had over them. They practiced the discipline of silence. They renounced their busy activity. Why? So that they'd learn how to pray and they would learn compassion for others. Which is interesting because you think, um, how do you grow in compassion for others by withdrawing from others and being silent and praying? Well, that's another paradox of the Christian faith. Right? Jesus modeled that. He had this regular rhythm. Getting away, being with the Lord, being quiet, praying. 
coming back. It is time in the Lord's presence uh, that gives us the ability to be compassionate, to be merciful, and to show Christ's love to people. Probably most of us aren't ready to go become monks, go move into a monastery, or go live out in the desert or something, but I would encourage you um, to have rhythms in your life where you withdraw and you are silent and you are before the Lord. Um, not only having a daily time with the Lord, not only practicing Sabbath, right, but I'd encourage you to take a few days each year, maybe even a week, and do like a prayer retreat. Time to be quiet. Just do the things that help you connect with God, things that will fill your cup with his presence. Right? I've done many of those over the years. Um, usually... I go out of town for a few days uh, or for a week and pray, walk, read. Sometimes uh, I'll get a hotel. Other times I'll, I've gone to a monastery, hung out with the monks. They usually allow visitors. Um, it's usually pretty, pretty inexpensive. They're not trying to make a profit. Um, they usually have food there, like a little cafeteria kind of thing. You go and you, don't, you can sit and eat with the monks. You don't have to talk to them. They respect that. But we all need regular rhythms for withdrawing from the world and connecting with God. Um, it can be life-changing. I distinctly remember um, the books I've read while on these prayer retreats. Like one of the things I do is just, like I'll pray and talk to God uh, as I'm reading these books. Um, one was Renovation of the Heart by Dallas Willard. Another one was Hearing God, also by Dallas Willard. Uh, one that I read on one of these prayer retreats was Love and Respect by Emerson, was it, Egerichs, the book on marriage. Um, I read, talk to God about what I'm reading, take notes, try to figure out what he's saying. Now, now that's what works for me. After a whole lot of experimenting, trying things that, you know, work for other people, see if they work for me, like this is the thing that I found that works for me, but I think each person has to find out what works for them. Like how you can withdraw, how you can be quiet, and how you can spend time with the Lord. So another historical example I want us to look at is St. Francis of Assisi. Um, what we learn from him is what it looks like to embrace a simple life of simple joy. Francis was born into a wealthy Italian family. Uh, as a young man, he was a pretty worldly guy, apparently liked to party a lot. Um, he joined the military, he was captured, he was imprisoned, and while he was in prison, Francis had a spiritual awakening, um, which eventually led him to give up his wealth, to live a life of poverty. Uh, he, he totally devoted himself to Jesus and to Christ's church. One of his biographers, Paul Sabatier, wrote this. He said, Perfectly happy, 
He felt himself more and more impelled to bring others to share his happiness and to proclaim to the four corners of the world how he attained it. So Francis referred to his followers as God's jugglers. God's jugglers. Their task was to, quote, revive the hearts of men and lead them into spiritual joy, unquote. They served, they preached, they sang. Now Francis, uh, from everything I've read, and I've I've read a lot on St. Francis over the years, um, he knew true joy. I'm pretty sure it wasn't some superficial kind of joy. It was a deep joy. A real uh, joy that is that was rooted in the cross, right? Not in escaping from it. So there's a story about how Francis was teaching one of the other brothers, Brother Leo, the meaning of perfect joy. So as the two were walking along uh, in the cold rain, Francis kept reminding Leo of all the things that people thought would bring them joy. And he would say something, And then after that, he'd he'd say, perfect joy is not in that. And then he'd say something else, perfect joy is not in that. Something else, perfect joy is not in that. And finally, Leo said, I beg you in God's name to tell me where perfect joy is. And Francis began to tell Leo of the most humiliating, the most self-degrading things that he could think of. And after each one, he would say, what perfect joy is there. And then Francis said this. Above all the graces and gifts of the Holy Spirit, which Christ gives to his friends, is that of conquering oneself and willingly enduring sufferings, insults, humiliations, and hardships for the love of Christ. This is a difficult lesson, but it's an important one. Perfect joy is to be found when Jesus gives us the gift of conquering oneself and willingly enduring sufferings, insults, humiliations, and hardships for the love of Christ. So when we're talking about simplifying uh, as a Christian, we also need to talk about this idea of our many selves, our many selves. Um, Within each of us, there can be a whole conglomeration of selves. So there's there's the timid self, there's the, the courageous self, there's the business self, there's the religious self, there's the parental self, the selfish self. And all of these selves want their own way. There's no bargaining, there's no compromising, right? Let's say you spend a a relaxing evening with your spouse. Your business self and your productive self both remind you that you've got work to do, right? Maybe trying to relax or rest or spend time with God. And your energetic self is, is impatient, right? It's pacing back and forth and frustrated. The parental self reminds you, you need to spend more time with your family. The selfish self 
wants you to go, like, go binge watch a show on Netflix or watch the ball game. And when we make a decision, whatever decision that ends up being, all the other selves revolt. Right? It's no wonder we feel distracted and we feel pulled in all these different directions. It's no wonder we end up overcommitting and, and living like frantic lives. But when we live life at the center, everything can change. All our many selves come under the unifying control of Jesus. Right? We're no longer forced to live uh, by choosing one self out of all the others, with all of them shouting like, choose me, choose me, choose me, right? The divine yes or the divine no settles everything. All those selves with all their competing priorities um, now become oriented to this new center of reference, right? We can now enjoy a quiet evening uh, with our spouse because all of our Many selves have been quieted and made still by God. All these selves are now at peace because they know that we are living in obedience to God. What's needed is for us to come into the divine center, the core. Now, it's one thing for God to come into us as he does in salvation, right? But it's another for us to come into God. Um, in the first case, when God comes into us, uh, we can still have some autonomy, can still be our own center, right? In the second case, though, God is the focal point. It's life out of the divine center. So there's a saying, uh, Christ in you. Christ in you. But better to say, as Paul said, that we are in Christ. Christ becomes the reference point because we're making our movement into him. So William Penn, another Quaker, uh, this time from the 1700s, he said this. Simplicity in its simplest form is an inward reality of single-eyed focus on God that results in an outward lifestyle free from cumber. Soren Kierkegaard, the Danish theologian from the 1800s, put it this way, he said, purity of heart is to will one thing. So as we begin to yield to this divine center, um, everything about us begins to become focused. Right? It's that great, that great commandment in Scripture, right? To love God with all our heart, soul, strength, and mind. We tend to compartmentalize, right? Here's my, here's my work box. Here's my family box. Here's my God box. But God doesn't want to be just one of the boxes, right? He wants to be at the center of everything we do. Work. Family, play, whatever. Here's a saying I saw on a bumper sticker once. If God is your co-pilot, switch seats. 
So when we do that, uh, we begin to find ourselves in the land of holy obedience, right? of self-renunciation, um, because we're not driving anymore. He is. Mark 8.34 says this, Then calling the crowd to join his disciples, Jesus said, If any of you wants to be my follower, you must give up your own way. Take up your cross and follow me. So in that verse right there, Jesus shows us uh, one of the central paradoxes of the Christian life. True self-fulfillment comes only through self-denial. There's no other way. It is living in his center. He's not living in ours. The best way to miss self-fulfillment is to pursue it. Jesus says in Matthew 10, 39, if you cling to your life, you will lose it. But if you give up your life for me, you will find it. But one of the cool things about living this way is that we begin to discover our true self our true identity, like who we really are. We're discovering our true self um, by focusing paradoxically not on ourself, but on the creator of self. So here's a great quote uh, from C.S. Lewis in his book, Mere Christianity. Your real new self, which is Christ's and also yours, and yours just because it is his, will not come as long as you're looking for it. It will come when you're looking for him. Does that sound strange? The same principle holds, you know, for more everyday matters. Even in social life, you will never make a good impression on other people until you stop thinking about what sort of impression you're making. Even in literature and art, no man who bothers about originality will ever be original. Whereas if you simply try to tell the truth without carrying two pence, how often it has been told before, you will, nine times out of ten, become original without ever having noticed it. The principle runs through all life from top to bottom. Give up yourself and you will find your real self. Lose your life and you will save it. Submit to death, death of your ambitions and favorite wishes every day, and death of your whole body, in the end, submit with every fiber of your being and you will find eternal life. Keep back nothing. Nothing that you have not given away will, real, will be really yours. Nothing in you that has not died will ever be raised from the dead. Look for yourself and you will find in the long run only hatred, loneliness, despair, rage, ruin, and decay. But look for Christ, and you will find him, and with him, everything else thrown in. If you haven't read that book, Mere Christianity, I highly, 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 highly recommend it. C.S. Lewis, uh, amazing, amazing author. So, so far, I've, I've focused on um, inward simplifying, because that's where we need to begin. Um, but I also want to talk about outward simplifying. Um, and I want to give you 
10 practical suggestions from one of my all-time favorite books, Richard Foster's Celebration of Discipline. Uh, I've read that book many times, taught through it many times. If you've not read it, I highly recommend it. So these are 10 ways to simplify our life, and they're in your sermon notes, uh, so you shouldn't have to write them down. Number one, buy things for their usefulness rather than their status. So whether it's our car, house, or clothing, uh, or whatever, we should buy what we need and not try to keep up with the Joneses. So several years ago, I read an article that inspired me to become uh, what's called a clothing minimalist. You probably noticed uh, I pretty much (laughs) wear the same outfit all the time, uh, just alternating colors. Like, you, if you don't believe me, go back and, like, look at the past sermons. Like, I have to look and I have to go, oh, I had the blue vest on last week. I better have the gray one on <laughs> this week so I don't look like I have just one outfit. But, uh, but yeah, jeans and shirt from Walmart. Um, New Balance sneakers because I have wide feet and they're comfortable and I like to run. Probably also notice uh, I have... Basically, a couple different vests that I alternate between gray and blue. They're from JCPenney. Uh, and actually, and like that's it. I actually will buy several of the exact same shirt, right? Even several of the same color. Why? Because uh, it keeps it simple when I go to pick out my clothes in the morning. I just poop. Kind of reminds me of. Uh, um, Pee Wee Herman, like in the old show, like he would open his closet and he had like 12 of the same, exact same outfit. I'm like, yeah, that's smart. (laughs) All right, number two. Reject anything that is producing an addiction in you. Okay, it could be TV, alcohol, the news, the internet, social media, video games, whatever. But if it's producing an an addiction in you, reject it. Number three, develop a habit of giving things away. So I've been a student of minimalism for many years. Um, I've probably read, I don't know, over 30 books on minimalism and getting rid of stuff. Um, I read David Bruno's book, The 100 Thing Challenge where he basically gets rid of everything except 100 things. And I was, when I started reading, I was like, does he count a pair of socks as two or <laughs> one? You know, <laughs> these kinds of things. Uh, I've read Marie Kondo. You know, most of you know Marie Kondo, right? I've held many things that I've owned and asked, does this spark joy in me? <laughs> right? And if it didn't, I got rid of it. <laughs> Uh, one of my favorite books along these lines is, is called um, Goodbye Things uh, by Fumio Sasaki. I mean, he basically goes from being a, like a hoarder to a super hardcore Japanese minimalist. And so when you think about like minimalism, like the Japanese are on a whole other level, right? So you like walk in a room and it's just an empty room with like a, like a table and one flower <laughs> kind of thing. Like he, he basically had like almost no stuff no extra furniture, didn't even have a bed. Like he would just uh, roll out his tatami mat on the floor and sleep at night, and then in the morning he'd roll it up and put it back in the, in the closet. It takes him, plus it takes him 20 minutes to like clean his whole apartment. I'm like, oh, 
Maybe some value to this. So I have so many books on this stuff uh, that Jackie told me once. She said, you know, you'd simplify your life if you'd stop buying books on how to simplify your life. <laughs> right? <laughs> True. <laughs> yeah, it's one area that I have not uh, been able to conquer, which is the love of buying books. <laughs> when we moved here, I literally got rid of half our books and now that number is starting to creep back up again. So, When it comes to downsizing and getting rid of stuff, uh, everyone needs to find their own way, right? What works for one person may not work for another. All right, number four, refuse to be propagandized by the custodians of modern gadgetry. So, um, really having been a nerd at heart, growing up in the 70s, 80s, um, I've always been fascinated by tech and gadgets, um, but I've learned over the years that really the whole system is just designed to take more and more of our money. Right? It's all designed to like stop working or need upgrading and replaced, right? So whatever your area of tech that you're interested in, right? Whether it's computers or video game systems or stereos, or your cell phone, or your TV, or even your coffee. Like, you can go down the rabbit hole with coffee, right? Like, like, what kind of grinder do you have? Do you have, like, the blades? Do you have a burr grinder? You know, and then you get in the world of, like, espresso machines. It's like, ooh, now we're talking thousands of dollars. <laughs> uh, it can be expensive to stay on the cutting edge of technology, right? And we don't need to. We don't need to. Number five, learn to enjoy things without owning them. Um, owning things seems to be an obsession in our culture. If we own it, we feel like we can control it. Right? If we can control it, uh, we feel like we will we'll enjoy it more. But that's an illusion. We don't have to own something in order to enjoy it. I guess I should preach that to myself when it comes to books. Like, we have a really good library in this town, don't we? <laughs> Oh, but I've justified it to myself. I'm like, well, they don't have these like tech, these theological you know, books that I need, you know, anyway. Number six, develop a greater appreciation for creation. Go outside, even when it's cold. I went for a, a long walk the other day in the snow um, and the frost and the ice and the trees like looked amazing. I felt like I was in a snow globe or something. And then there are like these little poofs of like snow falling out of the trees. And uh, it just looked magical. And like I just was walking and talking to God and just thanking him uh, for the beauty of his creation. So walk outside whenever you can. Listen to the birds. Enjoy the textures and the colors and the smells. Number seven, uh, look with a healthy skepticism at all buy now, pay later schemes. So when we were younger, I've, I've said this before, um, Jackie and I had all kinds of debt, right? We had credit card debt, student loan debt, um, and, and felt overwhelming. And God, by his grace, brought this couple into our lives. And one of the roles they served in 
at, the, at our church, uh, in my last church, was as budget coaches. And they helped us dig our way out, right, which was not easy. But I'm telling you, it is a great feeling to be debt-free. And it, and it can free us to be more generous. All these things that I'm talking about today, um, it becomes possible to do those kinds of things. Number eight, obey Jesus' instruction about plain, honest speech. So, uh, Matthew 5, 37 says, just say a simple yes, I will, or no, I won't. Anything beyond this is from the evil one. So plain, honest speech can, can be difficult. And on the one hand, we don't want to hurt people's feelings, right? So maybe we don't say anything. Uh, or maybe we go too far, and we're too direct. We're not speaking the truth in love anymore, as Paul instructs us to. But the idea is that we would practice simplicity of speech that comes out of that divine center. Number nine, reject anything that breeds the oppression of others. So who's actually making the products that we are consuming? Right? Are they paid well? Are they treated fairly? Is our consumption causing others to not have enough? And I can't leave this point without mentioning porn. Porn by its very nature uh, breeds a whole industry of oppression that includes the trafficking of innocent women, innocent children. So if you are looking at it, um, there are women and children suffering because of the demand that you are creating. Number 10, shun anything that distracts you from, the seeking, from seeking first the kingdom of God. Um, it's very easy to lose focus. Um, ask yourself this question. What distracts me and diverts my attention from God and the things of God? And then remove those things. And it's a, it's a lifelong question we have to ask ourselves. We go through these phases where we ask ourselves this question, we remove some things, and then over the years, things creep back in. We have to ask ourselves this question again. But it's important that we continue to ask ourselves this question and, and, and shun anything that distracts us from seeking first the kingdom of God. And that's how we begin to discover the center of unhurried peace, right? Where Jesus is at the helm. Where when our day is done, um, we, do, we lie down quietly in peace because all is well. Would you stand for prayer? Jesus, you are Lord of all creation. Um, Lord, the day will come when every knee will bow and every tongue confess that you are Lord and Savior. Life at that point for us believers will truly be simple. It'll all be about you, 
your love, your grace, your mercy, your compassion, your power, and your sovereignty over all of creation. Lord, I pray that 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 reality would begin now in each of our hearts, in each of our lives, so that you would be our divine center. Lord, may we have that single-eyed focus on you that results in an outward lifestyle free from cumber. pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.